0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at
1: edcorner.stanford.edu.
2: So let me say a couple of words about Vinod, although this might be one speaker I don't even have to say uh, anything about. How many of you have ever heard of Vinod Khosla before? Okay, that sort of settles it. For you on television, everybody raised their hand. Um, And so you have the bio, and of course those watching have the bio online, but um, a couple of things I'd like to point out. He did grow up in India. This is a global sort of afternoon, so we're celebrating that, but he came to the United States and went to Carnegie Mellon and eventually here at Stanford University. He started Sun, was a member of Kleiner Perkins, but now has his own venture firm, With he and his partners, they call it uh, Coastal Ventures. It's interesting uh, that on this very stage, less than 24 hours ago, if you saw the daily today, it said candidates' energy policies debated. There was a hot debate in here. Maybe some of you were were here. So uh, this topic is, there it goes, uh, this topic is not only important um, to those of us who care about entrepreneurship, but it's obviously important to people who care about policy. Uh, in in all sorts of things, and it's evidenced by the turnout today. Um, So, without further ado, let's welcome Vinokho Slap.
1: Thanks, Tom. Good afternoon. Good. We got everybody engaged. Okay. I'm going to... I didn't know what to talk about, so I decided to talk about a wide number of things, go through a lot of different topics, um, and, and give you a smattering for the feel, and a feel for how I think about both entrepreneurship, which is about half of you, and renewable energy, which hopefully the other half of you or all of you are interested in. Um, I start with a philosophy. You can't be reasonable and do unreasonable things. And most change, people believe, is unreasonable. So, you, uh, so people assume things will be the way they are. And I'll come back to this. This is one of my favorite sayings. It's also true that anything out of the ordinary that you tell people you want to do, and I'll give you some examples, people immediately say it's not possible. If you're in a big company, no matter how innovative, You almost don't want to say it because if you succeed, okay, but if you fail, you're fired, and that's not an even trade. But my personal view is try and fail, but don't fail to try. It's the single most important lesson I can give all of you here today, no matter what you're doing. And there's lots of great sayings on there, but but I won't take the time to go through it. I want to give you some examples of how ridiculous people can be in retrospect. I'll come back to this issue of retrospective uh, viewing. Uh, People thought uh, that the wireless music box, of course, was the radio, that there was no practical use for it. This was when messages were sent through teletext and other ways to people in particular, not to people in general. In fact, Henry Warner, I can't even imagine why you would say that, but, but <laughs> he's one of the smarter and more innovative guys. I mean, I, 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 I can go on. This was fairly recent. 1977, Deck, one of our competitors at Sun. No wonder they're not around anymore. (laughs) This was the head of the president of the Royal Society. In fact, I want to tell you that almost anything you can imagine, you can do. You just have to try hard enough. So. Let me move on to renewable energy and talk about what's important. Most of what you've heard about renewable energy, I find relatively uninteresting, wrong, immaterial. Hybrids, are they important? Not really. Wind, is it important? Not really. Is solar photovoltaics important? Not really. Maybe I'll try and explain to you why. Because these three things what matter. When people talk about photovoltaics or wind, they say, well, it can grow 30% a year for 10, 15, 20 years, become 5% of worldwide electricity. I believe that. What about the other 95? It's relevant scale that matters. And none of these technologies can get to relevant scale till they're at relevant cost. And there's only one relevant cost. And that's cheaper than their fossil competitors. Nothing else matters. Nothing else scales. Nothing else solves the climate change problem. And adoption's important, and maybe I'll come back and talk about this. So, I call this the Chindia test. If a technology doesn't meet the Chindia price, the price at which it will be adopted in India and China, and remember, there's no subsidies for any of this stuff in most of the world. They have to be cheaper than coal or cheaper than oil. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You also can't brute force this Technologies They have to grow up in an exponentially distributed fashion the way the internet did. That's a great model of how these things scale. And I'm going through this very quickly because there's lots of th- different things I want to cover. Finally, adoption risk matters. There's some things consumers. there's lots of great technologies that were never adopted. Hydrogen is an example of things we keep hearing about that I don't think will ever be adopted, not in the next 20 years. So, whether it's by the financial community, by the consumer, or the market, adoption is important. So, What becomes important to something that works, that actually solves the climate change problem? It has to have a cost. carbon. I actually didn't know I had this slide in this deck, so somebody changed my deck on me. Um, Cost, carbon reduction, and carbon scaling trajectory. What do I mean by that? T. Boone Pickens recently proposed we switch to natural gas. You can get an immediate reduction of 20% in carbon, carbon emissions per mile driven. But then it's a dead end. How do you go from 20% to 40% to 60% to 80%? We switch our infrastructure to, to, to natural gas, which is much cleaner. But then we are in the dead end. The trajectory is absolutely key. Means it should not only get My mic isn't working, so somebody in audio/video. I'll try and speak loudly, and maybe somebody else can uh, help with that. Uh, is is the broadcast going okay? Somebody tell me. Yeah. Okay, so I'll speak loudly here.
2: So maybe that mic is live
1: here. No. Mm-hmm.
2: So
1: oh. Okay. Well, that means I have to stand here. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Um, Trajectory is important. You can't pick things, and many people in the environment community are picking solutions that get to 10% or 20%. Now, we all hear efficiency is important, and efficiency is important. But it isn't the big factor that solves our problem, because we can save 10% or 20% of our energy or 50%. But we need 10 times more energy if 9 billion people on this planet by 2050 are going to live at the same standard of living that we are used to. And nothing else is relevant. So what is relevant? There's only two or three things that matter. This is not a complex question. You know, I love to hear Sheryl Crow talk about use only one sheet of toilet paper. Sorry. You can all switch to one sheet of toilet paper. It's not going to make a difference to climate change. <laughs> There's all these books about, uh, David Bach wrote a book about it, the 100 things you can do to help the environment. 99 of the 100 make no difference at all. Right? So we've got to separate what really matters, what's material, from, uh, from what, uh, what really is just feel-good stuff. And there's a lot of feel-good environmentalism that actually gets in the way of tackling real problems. We need to replace oil. Oil and coal, between them, are 65 70% of total global emissions. If we solve that problem, replace coal, replace oil, we're done. Materials are important. Cement and steel are the next biggest emitters of carbon dioxide. If we make those four things low carbon, we will have solved the carbon problem. If we don't solve those four problems, no matter what else we do, how many rolls of toilet paper we save, we're not going to solve the problem. So we should focus on the real issue. Efficiency, of course, is important only in that it reduces the need for oil and coal and helps us replace it. But let's keep that in mind. So face the facts. How many people own a Prius here? A few hands. Costs you about $5,000 extra to buy a Prius. You can save much more. And it saves you about 1 ton of carbon per year. You can save 10 tons of carbon by just painting a 10 by 10 foot or, 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 or a small area of your roof white. You'll save more carbon than by buying a Prius. I wrote a blog called Prius More Greenwashed Than Green. Not that it's a bad car. I own a hybrid. I drive a hybrid. Everybody in our family drives a hybrid. But it's not a solution. Because it doesn't scale. It isn't the right cost. And it doesn't save enough carbon. It saves about a ton a year. Wind and photovoltaics. How about saying to somebody, we'll ship you power when this wind's blowing or the sun's shining. Rest of the time, forget your homework if you're in your dorm, or forget your favorite NFL game or TV show. That's the problem with wind and photovoltaics. Now, that's not to say it's hopeless. But if we are going to have wind in photovoltaic scale, we need to have storage of electricity. So the thing to work on to enable wind and photovoltaics is to work on storage of electricity, not on wind and photovoltaics. It's important to understand what makes things possible. The big thing the world is counting on is CCS, carbon capture and storage. Take this carbon dioxide, separate it from the air, and then pipe it under high pressure underground. Sorry, this doesn't work. And if it works, it costs so much, nobody's going to use it. And if that's our only solution, we're toast. Um, So let me go to the more hopeful part of this. Most people in this world take past history, and they build sophisticated models, and extrapolate, and predict the, the past, and predict the future. Um, I like to say, you when know, I first came up with this, I spoke at the UN right after the head of the International Energy Administration and the head of McKinsey Global Institute. And they made all these forecasts and models, and I said, every, when I came up, I said, everything you heard just now is entirely wrong. <laughs> and it was wrong because it was based on a set of assumptions on the past. They had no way to include in their future forecasts what technology would do. Um, Alan Kay, who was a computer scientist at Apple at one time, very famous around here, and at Xerox PARC, said, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And I firmly believe it's the only way to predict the future. So there's different classes of people, people who say, People like Exxon. CEO of Exxon has said 99% of the world will be dependent on oil. And I'm only going to worry about that 99%. Let everybody else worry about the 1%. Then there's the environmentalists, many of my friends, who want to do everything. And that's wrong, too, because it wastes resources. And we don't have infinite resources. So when people say, Well, let's put solar panels in San Francisco. I say, that's a bad idea. It's a foggy city. (laughs) You know, let's not do everything. Let's do the cost-effective stuff. And then I like to say I'm a pragmatist. I want to do, I share the same goals as the environmentalists in where we want to get to. But we need to be pragmatic to be realistic. This is my great hope, and I'll give you some examples of this. Technology expands the art of the possible. In 1996, I told some senior executives in the telephone companies that long-distance calls would be free. For AT&T, that was 80 percent of their revenue, and I said, "You know, in 10 years, this will all be free." People said that's unimaginable. It's unimaginable that a top Fortune 10 company would go under. Ten years later, they were sold for a song because long distance calls are free. How many of you care whether you're calling in area or out of the area? That wasn't the case ten years ago. The world can change. All because technology expands the order of the possible. And this order of the possible, and this is why entrepreneurship is so important. It's the power of ideas driven by entrepreneurial energy. It's the only thing we need. My general approach, this is my view to solving any problem, almost anything. Take a big problem, add the best minds, (coughs) add the power of ideas, the fuel of entrepreneurial energy, and a touch of capitalist greed. All those are essential components to solving problems. You know, and, and people often ask me how I got into this environmental movement. And I, you know, I've worried about the environment for a long time. And in the 90s, I started taking my kid, kids to the Amazon rainforest and diving in Palau and into those looking at whale sharks and things like that. And I worked closely. I trip, did trips with the Nature Conservancy and Conservation International and all these groups. And I realized that they were all really well-intentioned, all doing important things in terms of preserving the forests or preserving the corals. But nothing they were doing was going to change the course of industry. And that was the root problem. They were working on the fringes trying to save some corals, which are really important. I love diving. But it wasn't going to solve the problem by worrying about the corals. We had to worry about our energy infrastructure. We had to worry about material things. So, some unconventional thing. Most people believe oil is not replaceable. It is not only easily replaceable, we won't even debate this 10 years from now. And we will replace it with something that's a lot cheaper than oil, so everybody will use it. Same thing with coal. And I'll talk about some clever ideas. There was a great book. How many people have heard the book uh, Black Swan? Oh, good. Mostly, only two or three hands go up. I believe there are positive black swans and negative black swans. The word came from the fact that everybody in the Western world believed swans were white. Because there are no white, anything other than white uh, white swans in the Western world, till people went to Australia, saw a black swan, and that one thing changed their view of what a swan is. They're extreme impact events, they're rare events, and most importantly, they're retrospectively predictable. It's easy to explain today why long distance calls should be free. It's easy to explain today why we got into this debt crisis, all this bad debt. A month ago, nobody could explain it. Nobody even believed it was possible. That's a negative black swan. I believe we have plenty of technology black swans on the positive side. And what we need is more act bats more shots on gold, because you can't predict which of these things will come true. And if more of you go work on these problems, most of you may fail, but the few who succeed will save the world. And that's what we need. So what are black swans? People don't like coal. But what if more coal plants meant cleaning up the air, cleaner air? Hard to imagine. People say driving causes a lot of emissions. What if driving more reduced the carbon on this planet? I won't go through all of them. But I will tell you we're working on all of those. Ridiculous as they sound. So let me talk quickly about energy and how I view this. This is what people think of clean tech or renewable energy. I actually think it's sort of irrelevant to the equation. I hope I've given you a sense of that. The new green is about, not about clean tech, but it's about main tech. It's about the infrastructure of society. Because unless we change every part of our daily life, we're not going to get to the level of carbon reduction this planet needs. And that's 80% reduction. It's about engines. In lighting, in appliances, and batteries, and gasoline, and diesel and jet fuel and cement. Sim- it's about everything we do. Now, some people think that's a problem. I think it's an opportunity. Because without a big problem, nobody pays you to solve it. You know, you can't get paid for solving a problem that doesn't exist. So this clean tech stuff is the fringe. It's 5, 10, 20% of certain markets. I think we need to solve the 80%. And that's where the big opportunity comes from. So I'm gonna give you a very quick sense of how we look at these four areas and what our portfolio looks like and walk you through some examples of black swans. To replace coal, you can do all this. And and I won't go through all this. I I want to get to a few areas. Efficiency is important, both electrical and mechanical. That's lighting and batteries and motors, even homes, engines, appliances. Oil. And all this is on my website at cosloventures.com, so you don't have to. And there's lots of papers there if you want to read about them. But just about everything we do in our daily lives. And we have lots of companies. I'll walk you through some examples of how they're changing our lives. So instead of talking through the portfolio, I'll walk you through how I view the world. This is one of my favorites. Calera is building a new cement. What if cement, instead of being carbon positive, Uh, emitting lots of carbon dioxide was carbon negative. Actually absorbed carbon dioxide. Then every time you build something, you sequestered carbon. And this company came up with a great idea. Coal plants emit lots of carbon and so do oil plants and all kinds of industrial processes. All kinds of nasty stuff coming out of some stacks. They sort of, boy that uh, isn't very clear, they came up, this is a Stanford professor, came up with very clever chemistry to take this nasty stuff and turn it into cement. So he takes all the nasty stuff coming out of coal, carbon dioxide, sulfur, SOX, NOx, even mercury, puts them into a cement as carbonates. And those of you who know a little chemistry, carbon dioxide is said, can go into carbonates. Uh, I can go into more details if you have time for questions. So, cement could completely change our view of the world. In fact, it's the only way I see solving the carbon sequestration problem among the stuff that's visible to me today. Traditional approaches to carbon sequestration will not work. Living homes said, we build our homes this way. How about building them prefab? Now, most people think of prefab as ugly. Well they don't have to be. This home costs the same as a regular home, is prefab in this first leeds platinum home in the United States. Doesn't cost any more because it's built in a factory and prefab, it can be a lot more effective. Solar dime is doing glass that can switch colors go from dark to light so you can save energy or allow more heat into your house. It's electrochromic glass. Now I'll try and stay non-technical. These are all the companies we have that are doing fuels of one sort or or another for your car. But I want to give you one example of a black swan that's sort of my favorite. Oil comes from oil wells, goes into, as crude oil into refineries, and then into your gas pump. This company said, what if we could take biomass and turn it into crude oil? Then we wouldn't have to worry about any adoption risk. Remember I said that, okay, now you have biomass, we know that over millions of years, You can convert into crude oil. That's how all the crude oil on this planet comes from. But they said, well, what if instead of taking millions of years, we took a few minutes? I won't go into the details, but that's what they're working on. And they think they're pretty close. That's a black swan. And this is pure chemistry. It's clever chemistry, clever, clever catalysis. There's companies working on electrical efficiency and mechanical efficiency. Ecomotors doing better engines for your cars. Uh, How many people in mechanical engineering here? Quite a few hands, so I'll maybe do an example. Transonic is an interesting company. Most people think there's only two types of engines. Um, Spark ignition engines, where you have a spark plug that ignites the fuel, and auto ignition. Well, this company invented a third type. People still say it's not possible, but, th- but they think that they can double the efficiency of an engine. And it's clever. They do a new fuel injector, and the ignition happens, pre-ignition happens in the fuel injector. I won't go into the technical details, but something that everybody thought was impossible, that there were only two types of engines because we'd only seen two types for the last 100 years. They invented a different type. Now, one little breakthrough like that, if you can double the efficiency of engines, cuts worldwide oil consumption in half and completely changes the politics of the whole planet. It changes every assumption we have about how the world needs to work. Hmm. Sorry. Topanga's working on outdoor lighting, stadium lighting, street lighting, different kind of lighting. These companies are generating electricity, clean electricity. And I gave you one example, uh, Calera, that's trying to make coal cleaner. These are companies that are trying to do 100% renewable electricity. Great Point Energy is trying to produce clean natural gas, because natural gas is a fossil fuel. These companies are trying to do LED lighting. And this is a classic example. They think they can be 10 times more efficient than your regular incandescent lamp, maybe 20 times. Now, what does that do to electricity consumption and how much we need? And all those traditional models that the International Energy Administration and others want to talk about. Now, to be fair to the International Energy Administration, after I gave my talk on why everything they told you was wrong, the director actually came up to me, said he really appreciated my reasons for it, invited me to talk to their board about my views. So, give him credit. Nano H2O's doing water desalination. Water is probably as big a problem as oil. Um, Kai is doing lasers for your TVs. Do a whole new kind of TV. Oops. Segaris is doing um, all sorts of chemicals and bioplastics. And their approach is very simple. This is old Egyptian language, letters made into syllables, into words, into poems. I Said we can do the same thing starting with some platform chemistries. We can create a whole family of bioplastics. And so they're sort of doing all kinds of things and they're not talking about what they're doing so I'm being a little bit away. Gratz said nylon's a big product. All the carpet here is nylon. We can just make a renewable nylon. It's made from copper lactam. It's renewable nylon. Pax doing better air conditioners. Huge source of electricity. So I hope I've given you a sense how almost everything we do can and probably will be changed. People say, well, it hasn't happened. I have to tell you that three, four years ago, nobody was working on the problem. Um, how many PhD candidates here? Any? A few hands. So in 2004, I asked the director of engineering at, uh, uh, of the engineering, uh, the dean of the engineering school at UC Berkeley, how many of your professors interested in energy? He did an informal survey. And the answer was close to zero. That's why we don't have solutions. It was the last area in the world a smart PhD student would go into. He informally did the same survey in 2006 before he passed away, unfortunately because of cancer. Uh, And 50% of the professors in the engineering school were interested in energy. And I recently asked the president of MIT, and she said, energy is now the first choice. For all their bright new graduate students to do a PhD in. That's the crux of solving the problem. Remember I said it's the power of ideas? The ideas come from the smartest people, and the smartest people have not been going into energy for 30 or 40 years, maybe longer. And that's why I'm so optimistic that five years from now, when we have all these new PhDs and bright new minds, we will solve the problem. The other side of this, people sort of say, hey, what about stock bubbles and all this? I want to give you an important message. This was the dot-com bubble in 2000. This is what Morgan Stanley High Technology Index. But again, I want to tell you, stock prices and bubbles are irrelevant. Why why do I say they were irrelevant in the dot-com world? Because what's not? You know, stock prices in Wall Street are this artificial thing people trade on. They're not important. Please stop paying attention to them. Here's what, oops, what happened? Uh, oh, this is dark. You see this line, which is hard to see? That's internet traffic. That was the actual usage. Uh, I was wondering where that line disappeared. That's the actual usage of the internet. There was no bubble. It didn't slow down, Why does this sort of fluctuation in stock prices matter? What really matters is what people are doing day to day. And that's internet traffic. It never slowed down. There was no bubble. Stock price bubbles happened the whole time. The first one happened in 1930s. When you could get permission to build a railroad between two cities in England. You could offer scripts on the market, our modern-day equivalent of going public. And of course, there was a stock price bubble. You see that right there. And then stock prices collapsed. But through this period, rail building didn't stop. And we didn't stop using rails, uh, uh, railway uh, railways. We saw bubbles in broadcasting. We saw them in the internet. We'll see it in every area. But what's important is, That we look at the reality behind it, not at artificial things like stock prices. That's why, personally, I never pay attention to stock prices. If you do the right thing, build the right business, something that people want to use, the rest will take care of itself. I'm going to take a few more minutes to talk about innovation. I have some recommended reading. For those of you who want to change the world with positive black swans, I highly recommend this book, even though it's hard to read. To think differently, this is a fun read, The Purple Cow. And for those of you who want to apply the same entrepreneurial energy to social causes, how to change the world is about social entrepreneurship. A wonderful book, lots of great stories, and entirely in the nonprofit world. One of my personal heroes is Banker to the Poor. Um, and, and this is a great example. I first visited Professor Yunus in Bangladesh, uh, I think it was in the late 90s, um, and, and looked at the model. And then we funded this small operation in India that I thought would be a great nonprofit. This little nonprofit has now grown to the point where it is adding 300,000 new families a month to their, it's a microfinance organization, to their base. That's what they added in September with all the credit crisis. 300,000 families, that's about a million and a half people a month. They're profitable, making money, and expanding their reach. Till recently, they were adding 60 new bank branches, or village branches, a month. And they were applying every good personnel training technique out of McDonald's and Starbucks in making sure their loan officers could scale that rapidly. So no matter which area you're looking at, entrepreneurship in the power of ideas works. I I sort of want to take five minutes before I open it up to questions on the subject of innovation and how innovation works. I'm gonna take you through the world of biofuels. And and talk about eight or nine companies that we deal with. In how, this is not about the specific companies, but how people build on each other's ideas. This is an essential component of making progress. So Mascoma is a company started by Professor Leland uh, at Dartmouth. He'd been working on cellulosic ethanol technologies for 15, 20 years. They take all kinds of waste, paper mill waste, convert it, ferment it into, uh, into ethanol. And that's the traditional way to produce cellulosic ethanol. This company came along and said, well, they're doing it wrong. Cellulosic material, right starting place, but I don't want to pick a particular cellulosic material and build an enzyme to work on that that then converts it into ethanol, or just gasify it. And their justification was, when Hitler ran out of oil during the Second World War, he gasified coal and converted it into diesel. We can do the same thing with biomass. So this is a plant they built, and they're building this plant. Well, this next company came along, and so what they, uh, let me give you one more detail. What they do is convert the biomass, gasify it into something called syngas, which is 50% carbon monoxide and 50% hydrogen. Then they use a catalyst to convert it into ethanol. This company came along and said, well, range got that part right, that we should gasify all this biomass, wood chips in this case. But they got the back end right. They shouldn't use the chemical catalyst. Chemistry is all wrong. We'll use bugs. We'll ferment the syngas. They built on top of Ranger's idea. They did that. Well, then this little company came along from uh, New Zealand. And they said, people are right that you should sort of use syngas. But half of syngas, carbon monoxide, they're in lots of places. They started working at a steel mill and said, We'll design bugs that generate their own hydrogen so we don't need syngas. We'll just take carbon monoxide. And so they designed a new bug. This is all simple genetic engineering that actually, through the pyruvate pathway, generates its own makeup hydrogen. If it has hydrogen, it uses it. If it's not there, it makes it. And so they produced ethanol and butanol. Now, of course, if you have biomass, you make syngas, their bugs use it. If they don't, if you have steel mill ga- gas, they'll use steel mill waste gases to convert. See this notion of building on top of each other. This is not one of my favorite examples, came out of Berkeley. This company, Amaris, had a $42 million grant from the Gates Foundation. Um, people in Africa need malaria resistant drugs. Um, Automism is the drug that's sort of the best drug for this. Very expensive, produced in microgram quantities from a plant in China. Bad way to make a drug. Uh, so if, if, if a Westerner is visiting Africa, they can afford it, but nobody in Africa can afford otomism. So they took the genes from this plant and put it into a bug to make an antimalarial drug this way. Now, we came along and said, what about, you've sort of built a chemical factory inside this, how about a different set of genes? And can you produce diesel the same way you produce artemisone? Took them less than six months of genetic engineering and sort of some fancy synthetic biology work, and that's what they're doing now. Um, LS9 looked at what they were doing, sort of went further, all these pretty pictures, each of these is a metabolic pathway inside a cell. For those of you who don't know cellular machinery, goes on inside every cell or most cells in our body. they focused in on the particular pathway. It looks just like an integrated circuit. For those of you who are electrical engineers, to me, it's all the same. Uh, they're the same model. They sort of looked at that part of the circuit, optimized it, and then they cut off all the other things the cell does, all the other stuff. So, all the energy is channeled into producing the thing they want to produce. Happens to be in biology, but it could be an electrical circuit too, or a mechanical circuit for that matter. Uh, I won't go through all this, I've given you this example. I want to leave time for questions. I think that's the last thing I want to talk about. I've talked about this. That hopefully gives you a sense of how entrepreneurial ideas build on each other. People try and outdo each other, take the best of their ideas. And uh, let me stop there and open it up to questions. And if there's questions, uh, I've said some controversial things, so I'll try and answer them. People don't like me saying maybe Prius isn't the right solution. (laughs) It's a good solution. I drive one. It's not cost effective. It's never going to be a big part of, the next billion cars we ship on this planet. So, questions come up to maybe the mics, and feel free to ask me anything. Uh, So, I've got a question about cost-effectiveness in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems that a lot of these renewable or (coughs) cleaner uh, alternatives are competing (coughs) with what are essentially commodity (coughs) goods, whether that's oil or nylon or materials. How can we forge profitable companies while competing with basement prices on so many of these? Well, they're not basement prices. They're the prices that, that are the prices. In most of these cases, people haven't developed technologies to compete with them because they didn't think it was possible. They failed to try. They didn't fail trying. That's why I started there. It is very, very clear. I gave you the example of Kiyo, which is trying to turn biomass into crude oil. They think they'll be at 25 dollars a barrel. I don't know how oil competes with them. Right? Same thing with coal. If I take an old coal power plant and turn its exhaust into cement, I produce cheaper coal power and cheaper cement. Both those industries would be history without this new technology. So it is entirely possible. Grats producing copper lactam in nylon 6 or nylon 6-6. It's, they're doing it cheaper than oil-based copper lactam. So, yes?
0: I have actually um, short two questions. One is... Uh, So,
1: just one last thought. Okay. I mean, I urge all of you, don't let conventional wisdom limit your thinking. The biggest problem is what people think is possible. Not what's possible. So I really, uh, you know, I see this all the time. People say it's not possible. In fact, I like to make some outrageous statements because once in a while somebody will come up and say, you said that can't be done. I know how to do it. That's the best answer. Sorry.
0: Along the line, uh, line of the same question, what are the, I mean, you said, you could, it, the energies being developed right now could be cheaper than oil and could be possibly used... Uh, in many different industries and that could be their competitive advantage but right now it seems like a lot of small companies uh, especially companies that we haven't heard of what they're doing can they can't really um, spread their good stuff without government help or because um, so my question is will government need to intervene in this environmental crisis or can it be done purely just by companies you know, and entrepreneurial minds?
1: In, in some sense, the government has intervened and said, we're not going to charge you for carbon emissions. You know, 100 years ago, we didn't charge people for dumping wastewater into the river or dumping garbage in a garbage dump. Huh? We had all kinds of waste that we didn't charge for. When we ran into limits, we started charging for it. If we charge for carbon and said, here's the maximum amount of carbon, we wouldn't have this issue. So, in fact, the lack of action, the lack of, you know, we have the tragedy of the commons. You dump, for those of you economic students, you allow people to dump stuff in the air, they will, because it lowers their costs. You charge them for that dumping to the fair value of removing that dumped material, of course, that, their competitive advantage will disappear. So, coal-based power is not comparative with a different kind of solar power, solar thermal power. And um, tomorrow morning, we'll be opening a pilot plant in Bakersfield early morning, and Governor Schwarzenegger is gonna sort of announce this tomorrow morning. Um, It's because carbon has been priced that coal is cheaper. Coal would be more expensive than solar thermal power if that wasn't the case. So we do need policy. We need impo- uh, so policy is going to be very very important. Without policy, this is not going to work. Fortunately, both our candidates for president are, are very inclined to limit carbon. So I think we'll solve the problem. I don't believe we need lots of subsidies and things. It can help accelerate the programs, but I don't believe they are essential. And more importantly, I don't believe they should last very long. For example, I believe the wind subsidy has lasted a long time and we should discontinue it it's too expensive today uh, and we could use that money for research in universities and use it better Yes.
0: Um, it's actually kind of a follow-up question what you're talking about how do you see the future of carbon emission trading working uh... uh particularly in the u.s
1: And that's a very general question i think uh, it's hard to predict today. By December of next year, there's a large meeting in Copenhagen by which time we should have a successor to the Kyoto Treaty. Um, so that answer is probably a year away from now. Uh, if we don't come to agreement in Copenhagen next December, then we will have a major crisis. Then each person will be left to fend on their own, uh, half of Florida could be underwater. I don't have those charts here. It's sort of fun to see. The World Trade Center, we wouldn't have to worry because it'd be underwater. Um, And and so I'm hopeful, and most people are hopeful, we will come to a treaty, and that will then define the nature of the carbon cap and trade regime. So you see carbon emission trading as being pretty crucial to work with all these technologies? Um, Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Hi. Uh, first, I apologize for my voice. I'm getting over a cold, so I'm sorry that <laughs> I sound so awful. Um, but um, you ju- you ju- uh, you've shared with us some things that we do in our normal lives that are really kind of a waste of time. I'm wondering how, what your views are on recycling. Is that something that's worth our time and effort or, or not really? Um, so the question <laughs> is, is recycling worth the effort? I, I do believe it is, in general, but you can't say that 100% of the time. Um, That's an example where there are plenty of examples of recycling that take more energy than it would to just dump the material. So, again, don't accept conventional wisdom blindly. And, and that's sort of, hopefully you got that. You know, I, I'm not saying a Prius doesn't reduce carbon. But it is a relatively ineffective way to reduce carbon. In fact, uh, let me see, oh, they shut that off. Okay, Mm. Oh, maybe they didn't. Um, uh, So McKinsey did this study, and they said of all these different technologies, and the details don't matter, what is the cost to reduce a ton of carbon? Hybridization of cars was right here, the most expensive technology. Yet, it's so fashionable with environmentalists. Why? And, by the way, um, if I go back to what's the actual carbon reduction per mile driven with various technologies? The numbers don't look very good. I won't go through these details. The papers and details are on my website. But they don't look very good for what is likely to be the U.S. electric grid or the India electric grid or the China electric grid. So analysis is important, and cost is important. Right? Instead of spending five thousand dollars in a Prius to reduce a ton of carbon dioxide, you could spend two or three hundred dollars on changing the lamps in your house and save as much carbon. Right? Lamps or uh, lighting is somewhere in here. If you use CFL lamps, it actually saves you money. Anything below the line saves you money. Anything above the line costs you money. So you can't say efficiency is cost-effective or not. It depends on for what. Thank you. Thank you. Next. Yes.
0: Um, my question isn't so much on energy. It's more on the process of innovation. Mm-hmm. Just now you're mentioning that um, one, one, of, one of the generic solutions you had was to bring together the best minds. And I'm wondering if you are a startup and not an established company like Sun Microsystems, how do you bring the best people together? And once you do, how do you keep them engaged so that they can build on each other's ideas?
1: Um, you know, today it may be an established company. In 1982, it was four 25 year olds. Huh? And what did you do? You believed in your vision, you had a religious belief. And, and this is key of entrepreneurship. Every time, And this is why people who get into entrepreneurship to make money generally are not as successful as the people who get into entrepreneurship because they believe in their mission. It's it's the missionaries, not the mercenaries, who are really successful. That's why I say ignore stock prices. If you believe in what you're doing, you'll sell your heart out. You'll convince people to join you. We convinced all kinds of people to join us on sheer sort of verbal advantage, if I might call it that. It was really religious belief. What happens in in this kind of an environment? So let's say you start a ridiculous idea like replacing uh, IBM and DEC in 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 the computer business. People thought that was crazy. When you run into a problem, and there is no entrepreneurial effort that doesn't run into problems, if you're interested in making money, you say, boy, this is hard. Let me go do something else. If you believe in your mission, you su- it doesn 't matter if it 's a rock wall. you just bang your head against it till you s- get past it and that 's the key to entrepreneurship. It's sort of keep banging at it till you succeed, and nothing gets in your way and that 's an essential comp- quality yes Thank you. Um, thanks so i 'm actually from New Zealand and um, but i 'd never heard of the company Lanzatech, and so my question is really a case of. Do the small startup companies doing innovative, exciting stuff need to become as big um, as some of the sort of the larger, for example,
0: oil companies or energy companies, as they like to call themselves now, in order to have the economies of scale to really make a big positive impact on the world, or can they just be, a, you know, a thousand little garage efforts which then together sort of, you know, lead to success?
1: Generally, unless you're big, you don't have impact, and being, having global impact means you're big in some way. Now, you don't have to become a big company. You could invent a technology and license it out. But by and large, you know, and this is, this is something that people don't understand. Unless it pervades everything, which means necessarily that you're a big business, you're really not having impact. Right? There's no point solving 10% of the problem, especially a big problem like climate change. If you're addressing 90% of the problem, then you're going to be a big company. And you may not have heard of Lanza Tech, but, but I, I like to say Lanza Tech is not a zero million dollar company because they have no revenue, but they are a zero billion dollar company. And the difference is their attitude. The difference between zero million and zero billion is all in the attitude. How you think of yourself, what kind of people you hire, how you portray yourself, and how you build your own goals. So. Yes, you have to be big. Hi. Um, what about the transition? I mean, the economical transition. Uh, for instance, in the 1930s, uh, the U.S.
0: had this Great Depression. However, now we're facing a globalized economy uh, that is basically, well, a, a very big portion of it is based on oil products and its derivates. How do you think we're going to be able to survive this, uh, this transition between uh, regular oil and now this new oil?
1: The world doesn't work from the top down. So, this is what economists do. I sort of, another version of my slide deck is, you know, don't believe the economists in the econometrics. It's top-down views. The world works from the bottom up. One car at a time switching to something else. There are disruptions. How did AT&T, how did we go to free phone calls when everybody in the world relied on most of their revenue coming from long distance? It happened. They were forced to change. They adapted. Some did. Some didn't. They failed. Uh, That same thing will happen here. You know, somebody will build a plant in Alabama. Somebody in Georgia will build three of those. And then they'll be copied in California and Washington and Beijing and everywhere else. That's how the world works. So I don't believe those sort of top-down models. You know, you get all these but the statements by the pundits about how many trillions of dollars of energy infrastructure we have. That's all nonsense. It doesn't need to be. It'll, it, in the end, they'll count it back up in 2050 and say, yes, we spent trillions. But it will have had, happened $10 million at a time. Each little decision. This is what I called about scaling in an exponential distributed way. Lots of different... It's like whack a And if Exxon's trying to kill them, they'll be whacking molds all day long. A new one will keep popping up because better technology exists.
0: So you've alluded to the importance of energy storage in your presentation, and I think anybody who wants to actually get off oil has acknowledged that. But your portfolio of companies, or at least what you publish online, actually has relatively few energy storage companies. Is this because you're having difficulty actually finding startups that you think are you know, meritorious in terms of funding,
1: or...? Um, Yes. Um, Energy storage is a massive problem. There's not enough effort. I gave the hotel lecture, which is a named lecture at the MIT chemical engineering department uh, about three weeks ago. And I asked people, uh, let me ask a question here. How many people have heard of flow cells? A few hands. More than went up at MIT, so that's good. Uh, Most people hadn't even heard the term. I suspect energy storage for wind will probably be a flow cell. It could be something different. I'd like to be surprised with something better. But nobody's working on it. I don't know one serious research effort on flow cells that sort of has 50 researchers working on it. It's a big enough problem where we should. I know it's 5.30. Those of you who need to leave, uh, I'll take a few more minutes and take questions, but those of you... That's
2: a great idea. And so we, he's agreed to do bonus time, which is pretty cool, but can we do a wrap-up for the broadcast, sure. and then we'll uh, continue, okay? So oh. stay where you are, folks. So let me introduce the speakers here, I mean, the, the students. So on behalf of
1: Basin STVP, thank you for now for coming. Oh, thank actually, you. Uh,